Healthcare is rapidly changing. Innovative technologies and new treatment paradigms are changing the way we tackle the world's pervasive health issues. I'm Alex Godin with Oxner Health in New Orleans, Louisiana. Join me as we go inside Louisiana's largest healthcare system, where we discuss new ideas in confronting these healthcare challenges. We talk to thought leaders and healthcare experts to explore the latest innovations in patient care. Welcome to Innovation Health. Living in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, the morality of having to make life and death decisions in a healthcare setting has taken center stage. Who decides what patient can receive life-saving treatment if that treatment is in short supply? Who decides when it's right for a dying patient to no longer prolong life? What if patients and family disagree? In this episode of Innovation Health, we talk with Oxner Health's Chair of the Bioethics Committee, Dr. Susan Nelson, to take a more nuanced look at how healthcare providers deal with ethical dilemmas and how life and death decisions are made. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Nelson. Thanks for having me. I think we're going to have a great conversation, and a lot of this topic and material is new to me, so I think you're going to really shed some light on a lot of things here. Um, The first thing I just want to jump right in is, what is bioethics? So really, bioethics is a way of thinking about um, critical issues that happen um, in healthcare. Um, It's a way to support staff to make good decisions. Um, and really to think about some of the violations uh, that are maybe even subtle that are happening with healthcare, and it's just really a way to think critically about um, a patient's care or the care that we provide in the health system, um, and and it's to get a point of view from everybody that's involved in the situation. Um, to look at it from different uh, areas and avenues and expertise, too. So what would your typical day look like leading up bioethics here at Oxner? So we're in the process of really revamping our our system uh, to make sure that all of the committees, which is uh, required under mm-hmm. um, some of the hospital regulations, um, so that all the committees have similar uh, people types, if you will, on the committee, um, and then make sure that everyone has similar education. So we're working to roll out some educational initiatives that are that go along with that. Because we're affiliated with the medical school, so the University of Queensland, and then also we have medical students and residents and other allied health professionals, we really want it to be a learning environment so that people can learn about ethical principles um, from early on in their training um, so that they carry that forward with the rest of their career. And so, of course, you know, just intrinsically with healthcare, you know, morality, ethics would always be a major fundamental piece. Um, and you talked about how bioethics is becoming more and more a part of an educational element in terms of a provider's training. How would you say that's changed over the last, you know, 20 30 years even, has that always been a focus in terms of preparing a new physician? Yes. So bioethics has been around for a long time. The the issues in bioethics um, are certainly more complex now. Um, There were 
you know, typically there were issues in ethics that had to do with beginning of life and end of life. And that's where a lot of the focus is. But bioethical uh, things include um, whether the, you know, the nurse that's, that works for a physician um, sells makeup on the side and the patients feel pressured to buy makeup or something like that. Right. I mean, that's, that's really I never would have a, thought of that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, um, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, even selling uh, Girl Scout cookies, mm-hmm. I think Girl Scout cookies are wonderful, but, you know, sometimes people feel pressured to buy, you know, things like that. So that could be an ethical, um, violation. Um, um, or also, uh, if, the physician refers people to their cousin's home health agency. You know, that seems a little squishy. Um, and so, you know, that's one of those things, if you think you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't. Um, and so, you know, it, it encompasses all sorts of, of things like that. I want to jump into a kind of a specific scenario here to kind of get the take from the bioethics perspective. So let's say we have, you know, maybe a patient is dying and nothing can be done to save that patient's life. Who makes the decision in that case as far as life support, prolonging life? Um, who makes that that game time decision of what should be done then? So you hope that the patient and their family have had a conversation about what might happen next, because really only about 10% of people die suddenly. Um and the rest of us, 90% of us, actually have a period of time, whether that's days, weeks, months, or years of chronic illness mm-hmm. and really anticipating what might happen next. So um, hopefully what happens is that the patient's scenario is really addressed well by the primary team with the family and talk about what can be done what should be done and what can't be done. So we see on television a lot that people demand this or that, but if it's not gonna help the patient, then we really shouldn't do it. And so there's a lot of consumer demand. They feel like they can you know, look up on the internet and find out what, what they think should be done without the clinical expertise mm-hmm. of you know, how you particularly take care of a, a patient. You know, there's really the scenario of sometimes people love somebody too much to let them go. And so, you know, then it's a difficult emotional um, conversation. And so uh, one of the things that we do in palliative medicine that, that you know, sort of is on the ethics uh, spectrum is really talk to the patient's family, certainly when the patient can't participate, about what they were like, what matters most to them, and then be able to uh, put that into the context of what they would be like if they were to survive this illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that actually helps people. So if you have somebody that you say, you know, what would your dad be doing today if, if you know, if he, if it was a normal day? And they say, oh, you know, he'd be out on the golf course, or or he would be out in the garden, um, or he'd be riding his tractor. Those tangible things, really, yeah. And and then you can say, well, this has happened, and that will never happen. Mm-hmm. No matter what we do, that will never um, happen. And so, really, getting people to focus on 
what is important to the person in in the bed, if you will, um, helps people really think about, you know, what their demands are. Um, so you mentioned, you know, ideally these conversations would have taken place between a patient and their family. And I think for a lot of people, for most of us, you know, that's almost awkward to think about or very uncomfortable to think of initiating a conversation with your loved one saying, you know, if something were to happen to me, this is what I'd want, this is what I would want to happen. Um, do you have any advice for that kind of scenario, for that feeling of discomfort when approaching these conversations? Well, it's actually interesting, and, and certainly COVID has both hindered and helped in this arena, in that almost everybody knows somebody who's had COVID and has not recovered and has died from COVID. Mm -hmm. And so um, in, in that context, uh, people really can talk about things just on the basis of what the family dynamics were with Aunt Bertha's scenario or... Right. Um, you know, how everybody behaved. And, and, you know, I recently had a conversation with a family and, and that was that they were like, we really don't want to, to end up like, you know, our cousins, uh, family where the kids aren't speaking to each other because of some of the decisions. Um, and, and it's really that the, this, you know, scenario that I'm thinking of the patient really had identified what was important to him and they just, the family disagreed with what he wanted done. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you, so you, you really have to talk about these things way ahead of time, um, if you possibly can. We, we encourage people actually to have conversations around Thanksgiving, and that sounds funny, but... <laughs> but dinner table talk? Well, yeah, <laughs> after dinner, um, because most families prior to COVID get together for Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. not more so than Christmas, New Year's, Easter. It's really Thanksgiving. And so, um, I mean, my mother did did that, you know, said, okay, I'm getting older and these are the things that, that I want done. Well, it helps that I'm her daughter as well. Um, but but uh, I actually have a nephew who's a financial planner and he was the one who actually brought it up because of some, you know, people argue about money. Uh, in in these situations, oh, wow. um, so so it it is, and so um, you know, so it's important to just you know to have pick a time and have a conversation. Um, certainly, there are are things that happened in the media where where then somebody could say, "Oh, I don't want that to happen to me," or "I do want that you know to happen to me," and so. You know, we can use some of those scenarios. Um, I'm old enough to, to, you know, say in residency, the show ER was on when I was in residency, and, and the reruns are on now as well. But um, so we literally used to watch that to see the next day in clinic what people were going to be talking about, right? Because the scenario that they would bring up was plausible or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and so same same thing with Grey's Anatomy and and some of the different shows that are on now. You know, you sort of want to keep an eye out for what what's in the media so that you can either refute it or agree with what's going on. Right. And, you know, before, you know, we started recording, we were talking about how even just your life experience can really color how you make those decisions for your advanced directives and things like that, you know, even things you are experiencing as a teenager, as a child. So it kind of brings up the fact that, 
you know, people in their 20s don't think about, I need to have my advanced directive in place or things like that or have that conversation with my family. But really, that's that's all ages should be having those discussions. Well, it, it should be. And, and it really should be as much about our health maintenance um, as anything else. So, you know, when you when you have the going off to college talk, when uh, students are, are have to see their physician or other healthcare provider to make sure that their shots are up to date uh, to go to college. So, you know, you give the talk to people about um, wearing your seatbelt, don't drink and drive, have safe sex, those sorts of things. You really need to say, and if something happened to you, who who would we call? Who would mm-hmm. you trust? You know, to make any decisions. Um, Louisiana actually has some of the best um, decision maker laws, if you will. So, in uh, 2014, uh, the legislature actually um, identified who decision makers are. So, um, a lot of people think it's it is their spouse, and and actually that's sort of the third person on the list. But um, really? but a lot of people think it's the oldest son or or the oldest child gets to make those firstborn. Yeah. So, you know, so in Louisiana, the patient always gets to make decisions for themselves, even if they is written. It's it is. Yes. And and even if the rest of the family doesn't like those decisions, if the patient has capacity. So there's two things. One is capacity that the patient understands what the question is, can identify really the scenario and then uh, repeat back to you why they made the decision um, is sort of a simplistic thing of capacity. Competence is actually decided by the court. So that's when somebody has a legal guardian because they're unable to make decisions for themselves. Um, so the patient always gets to make decisions for themselves. And then the next would be a legal guardian if somebody's been appointed by the court and given the ability to make health care decisions. So yeah, that's the little nuance of that. And then it's the spouse, unless there's a couple of things there, too. You can't be judicially separated, mm-hmm. and the patient can't, couldn't have been injured by that person. Um, so that there's some sort of, um, you know... Uh, Good intentions. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then it's a majority of the children. It used to be all of the children, and now it's a majority of the children. And a good faith effort has to be mm-hmm. done to, to find them. But if somebody hasn't seen the brother in 20 years, the last time they were reported was in Washington State, you know, we don't necessarily have an obligation to go, you know, searching the highways right. for, for that person. It's intuitive if you think about it. Yeah. So so after a majority of the children, it's the parents. And so it's it's the legal parents, not necessarily the mom and stepdad and the step and the, and the dad and stepmom. Um, so it's the parents. Um, and then it's a majority of brothers and sisters. Um, and then it is antecedents and descendants, so grandchildren, cousins. And then there's something in our law called a special friend, which is um, someone who has shown special care and concern for somebody um, but isn't on the list and no one else above them on the list is able to be contacted. So, right. you know, that might be somebody in the neighborhood who always looks after folks and, you know, has had conversations with them about what they want. And then the last is really the attending physician under certain circumstances. But you have to remember that 
that only occurs if nobody else on the list. All of that, those categories, yeah. are, you know, available. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned, you know, patient competency and capacity and really kind of diving into that, you know, just patient autonomy in terms of their decision making. Um, and I do want to get more into the family dynamic a bit, but looking at the patient alone right now, um, do patients have a right to refuse treatment and how is that handled? Yes. So that's actually one of the tenets of autonomy is that mm-hmm. people get the right to make or refuse you know, make decisions and then accept or refuse treatment. And so that comes out of the um, Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990 uh, that says that whenever you go to a healthcare facility, they should be asking you, do you have an advanced directive? Mm -hmm. And if you do, would you like to leave us a copy? And if you don't, would you like to execute one and give some information? Um, So we're really working on that at Auctioner Health to really have this normalize that, you know, it's really, if something happened to you right here, you know, who would we call? Because the only contact number that's on your chart is your own cell phone number. Right. <laughs> so um, so we're really trying to get people to normalize that conversation. Who would we call if, if something happened to you? And really in COVID, um, there were patients who came from long-term care facilities to, to our hospitals, and the phone number that was on the chart was no longer in service. What is, so, what is that, you know, specific process? What do you even do in that case? Well, so start? we have incredible social workers <laughs> <laughs> um, who, they know who, the drill. <laughs> you know, and, and because we do have electronic health records, um, we really sift through previous admissions, and now we have the ability to go on to other electronic health records for on behalf of the patient that, you know, somewhere else, uh, even in the country that has EPIC, and just look and see if there's a phone number on the chart, and then call that person and see if they know who the person is to contact. And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as they changed, you know, cell phone providers and they changed their phone number and didn't tell any, you know, didn't tell the the facility. And sometimes that person really has become unavailable because they've died themselves. Um, Mm. So, you know, it's just really an important thing to to really ask people. And you hope that the the first person that comes to mind for you is really somebody you would trust to make decisions if if you couldn't make them for yourself. So thinking through, you know, kind of opening up that conversation of quality of life, for example, and maybe that being a driver for a patient wishing to discontinue treatment. You know, maybe they want to stop their chemotherapy, but maybe the family is of the different mindset, no, fight this, we need you to fight this. And you mentioned earlier those conversations that you have with them talking about, oh, would they be able to do the things they like. Is that where those really come into play, you know, those disagreements where the patient may want to discontinue treatment and the family really wants them to keep going? Yeah, so so we have really an obligation to help people get that point across to their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why it's important to write things down and to let their, you know, healthcare professionals that are taking care of them really know what their wishes might be. Um, you know, I've, I've actually had scenarios where the patient wanted, did not want something. And a lot of times it's, it's life support, not, did not want to be put on a ventilator. And the family said, oh, well, we'll just wait till they become unconscious. And then I'm the decision maker and I'll make that decision. 
But, you know, if the patient was able to tell you in their own words why they did or didn't want something, then we really should honor the patient's wishes in, in that scenario. Um, and, and sometimes a patient feels almost bullied by their family. I know that's a really rough word. Wow. <laughs> because they, you know, they don't, they don't know what they're feeling um, when How they're, difficult. where they're getting certain treatments. And sometimes we, um, as a team, uh, really need to help the, the patient um, talk about it. And so I know I've been in scenarios where the patient said that they really just couldn't stand up to their daughter. They didn't feel like they could. And so in a family meeting, I've spoken the words that the patient asked me to speak. That's um, amazing as an a, advocate on their behalf. A, yeah, you, you have to advocate for what they want. And then to really, you know, it's, it's a witness conversation um, so that everybody understands why it is that the patient does or doesn't want something. Um, and those are difficult conversations to have. Um, you know, even just from, from my perspective, I can't imagine being that person that, that sits down and is initiating that conversation and communicating some of those really, you know, emotional items. And I, I know earlier, before we started, you know, recording, you mentioned how even on a normal day, you might be calling a family at a nursing home to discuss certain things. So, you know, it's so interesting to hear that, that this is something you are so well versed in doing, but I'm sure is can still be emotional nevertheless, but you're able to approach it knowing you have the patient's best interest at heart. That that is really what, what makes you, you know, this fulfilling is that you can really get to the heart of what the patient wants. And, you know, we don't walk in their shoes. And so you know, it's really important to ask them what's important to them and what gives their life meaning. And, you know, we we don't we don't um, only take care of people at the end of their life, but you know, the decision to have this surgery or that surgery or what the um, downstream effects of that are. You know, sometimes people, for instance, will refuse an amputation because they can't imagine what their life would be like. And so, you know, it's really important to let them know kind of the things that will happen next. So, you know, whether they'll be able to walk with a prosthesis or, you know, whether they get, you know, because they have an amputation, they get like a fancy, you know, scooter uh, and things right, like but that. Still, those you like know, tangible items, kind of how you were mentioning earlier, yes. providing them those tangible items they can think through. So, you know, so people think of, you know, the movies that they've seen. And so, you know, I've, uh, had older patients that when you mention the word amputation can only think of the scene in Gone with the Wind in Atlanta with a silver bullet. Um, and, you know, and so, so you know, that's, that's their idea of an, of an amputation. And other people, it's really, you know, watching some of the Vietnam era uh, movies and, you know, Fourth of July, things mm -hmm. like that, where, where people had these injuries from war. And so they can't imagine that they could get the same sort of resources, perhaps, that somebody who's a younger veteran would, you know, would get. Um, so it's really helping people sort of see what, what might happen next and what the consequences of the things are instead of just refusing for the sake of refusing. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, I kind of want to just pick your brain. Are there any 
particularly difficult or memorable cases you've experienced that have left kind of a lasting impact on you? Hmm, yes. Um, so, so typically, um, you know, there, there are things where the patient was very um, explicit in what they wanted done, and it just seemed like a battle with the family to, to say, this is what they wanted, this is what they told me, um, and, you know, I honestly think that this is the right course of action. And, and um, you know, then, then you do need to get, you know, the ethics committee involved so that everybody can can feel like they were heard. So, you know, as a physician, you know, you and the conversation that you have with the patient is really the single source of truth. So, um, so whatever a patient tells you in, in the room uh, is really um, sacred information. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to relay that to the family is really sometimes a, a, tough, a tough thing for them to understand. Um, like you said, part of that resolution is really everyone feeling like they're hurt at least. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sad when, when people die or, or the, the treatment didn't go as they had planned. But really to, to be able to give some sense of peace or direction mm-hmm. um, to the rest of the family about why this or that, you know, worked better than something else. Um, is really important. Um, sometimes, um, sometimes, for instance, with patients with dementia, um, so memory impairment that interferes mm-hmm. with day-to-day function, um, the patient said that they never wanted to be put in a nursing home. Well, nursing homes are an integral part of the care that we provide uh, to people who can't c- take care of themselves. And so, um, some of the dilemma that comes up is that the patient really isn't being cared for by the family because everybody's trying to work. Um, and so they're left alone and the, just the conflict that people have because they promised their family member not that they wouldn't put them in a nursing home and yet the nursing home is really the place that they need to be the for the option. care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you know, there's a lot of those sorts of conflicts um, is it, you know, should you leave your family member I think home? Probably everyone, you know, here, everyone has experienced a very similar situation to that, maybe with some of yeah. their older family members. Yeah, it, it's tough. Um, you know, I, and I guess probably my experience is that when I was 17, my grandmother lived with us, and then she was in a nursing home for a while. Um, and and I honestly could I could take the car anywhere I wanted to go um, as long as I stopped by the nursing home and picked up my grandmother's dirty clothes. So I don't know maybe I was destined to uh, to a career in uh, geriatrics and palliative medicine and and ethics just because that's sort of where I started um, doing stuff. But so I saw my grandmother every day in the nursing home. And I mean, like you said, a lot of people just aren't experiencing that. You know facility or, or those those places a lot like we were talking about earlier a lot of people only go to a nursing home when they they have to go right you know right. they aren't they aren't seeing it day in day out yeah and it's really not part of the medical school and residency curriculum to be honest uh, it's not it's not a required part to to do um, you know special rotations in geriatrics or in nursing home care and do you think that might change one day well I hope 
and certainly uh, at Ochsner, uh, the clinical school, we're we're incorporating more geriatric uh, principles and and um, rotations where they can go to long-term care facilities and participate with physicians who do a lot of comprehensive care for the elderly and and certainly people with social determinants of health, which mm-hmm. is, you know, if you don't have a safe house to live in, it's, it's hard to want to go home from the hospital. And so, you know, all those things really take, uh, have to be taken into account when we take care of, of people. And they're not necessarily you know, geriatric patients. So we, we've discussed how, you know, sometimes a family and the specific patient can disagree over the care plan, but what happens when the doctor and the family disagree? Well, that actually happens um, when, when the physician has a specific thing that they can do mm-hmm. that may help, um, and the family really perceives that they wouldn't want that. Um, so, so typically what happens is, uh, another physician can be, um, not assigned, well, maybe assigned, but another physician can take over the care. Um, we at Auctioner Health usually have a lot of team-based care, so mm-hmm. there's usually somebody else on the team. Um, and so a different attending physician can be assigned. Um, and sometimes that is something that goes to the ethics committee to really hear why, the, the, the questions, the decisions, not to second guess the physician necessarily, but to really get all the issues out on the table and to understand why somebody would or wouldn't want something. So, you know, a scenario might be that um, a patient was having a heart catheterization, for instance, and, you know, unfortunately, one of the um, complications that can occur is that the the blood vessel to the heart that you're trying to open up not only opens up, but sort of pops. Um, and so then the patient is taken to emergent bypass, if you will. So, you know, usually when people have heart catheterizations, um, there's a, a open heart surgery team on standby. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, the patient to save their life is taken to, um, you know, bypass and that's fixed. And, um, and then the patient has a prolonged course in the hospital and is able to get off the ventilator. Um, and then, but then after that, they, there's other complications that have happened, you know, for whatever reason. And then the, for instance, the patient and the family decide that now that the kidneys have failed, that they don't want to be dialyzed, which is, you know, can be a life-sustaining treatment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, having those decisions, the family say, you know, mom would not want to, um, be, you know, hooked up to a machine three times a week, and it's okay for her to go home and live her life the rest of the rest of the time, and it may be days or weeks, but not months in that situation. And you know, the, all the members of the team may not agree about that because you know, for instance, dialysis is a much more ubiquitous um, mm-hmm. procedure that we do, and people don't really think of it as a life-sustaining procedure. And so, yeah, why wouldn't somebody want that? And so, in, a family may say, "Well, you know, that's that's just not how mom is or dad is," and and we wouldn't want to do that. We'd rather take them home 
spend whatever time we can with them. And, and so it's really nice in that situation if the patient can then express that. So, yeah, I'm fully um, agreeing. Yeah. And so, but sometimes families, you know, families just, there'll be one sort of odd man out. And there is also some of the physicians on the team who disagree with that. And, and you know, it really is, again, hard on both sides, of course, for the family who's having to see their loved one go through this, but then also from the physician who also wants what's best for the patient and who, who probably truly thinks that this is the best course of action with the best intentions. So, you know, both coming from from, from really well-intentioned places, I yeah. can see how that could be hard on, on a provider, on a physician also yeah. Yeah. going through that. Yeah. I mean, and we, you know, sometimes people think that, that this is you know that this is easy work, and there's some people that say you shouldn't you shouldn't show any emotion when you're when you're doing this. But I mean, I you know I can close my eyes and think of of you know wonder pe- wonderful people that I've taken care of, um, and you know they still tug at my heart about you know the decisions that were made, and at the time they were the best decision that could be made, um, and so you know sort of having a framework of of ethics. Um, is really helpful for people to think about, you know, the sort of the four principles of bioethics of, you know, autonomy. So the patient mm-hmm. gets to decide what they think is best as long as they have the capacity to decide that. Um, beneficence, so doing good, doing the most good for the most people. Um, non-maleficence, so that's doing harm to people. And then justice. Um, so, you know, justice uh, is when there were conversations about uh, ventilators and would would we run out of ven- ventilators and who would get the ventilators? Well, you know, on the justice principles, it's who would benefit the most from mm-hmm. the the use of a ventilator. So all those principles really do come into effect as we as we talk about you know how to think through a problem that a patient has. That's so interesting with the ventilators. I do remember that being a large conversation during COVID. You know, you how know, do you decide? You know, from a layperson's perspective, you know, we're kind of like, how do you decide? You know, we don't know the factors that go into it necessarily. Right. Well, so Louisiana does have um, crisis standards of care. Which helps. Which helps. Established, yeah. you know, that and established then, process. You know, and that was actually done after SARS. Um, yeah. So, so you know, SARS was really thought to be what COVID has turned out to be. Uh, so there were many uh, really smart people and ethicists that from all of the health systems across the state uh, that were organized by the Department of Health um, to really think through, you know, allocation of short resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even things to the point of... Um, you know, what the security would look like uh, for, you know, who who would get this and who wouldn't get this. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things to think about. So we we dusted off that uh, from from SARS and um, and then, you know, we're able to put an operational framework to the crisis standards of care. Luckily, we never had to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, Louisiana really did get to the top of the mountain. And that kind of that critical point there. Yeah, where it was like, oh, no. And, and then, you know, that was, that was last year. 
um, the two weeks after. What was um, like that energy in in the hospitals when you were at that point when it was kind of on the precipice? Are we about to have to start doing this? Kind of, what does that feel like with your provider team? Well, it was awful. I mean, really, you know, and and the the so one of the the contexts of this would be that the people taking care of the patient mm-hmm. and the people making the decisions about who gets, um, you know, aggressive sort of curative treatment and who gets comfort-focused treatment um, was going to be made by somebody else. Okay. So so that the, the person taking care of the patient wouldn't wouldn't have those decisions. And so the 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 um, the other group uh, would have been some seasoned uh, physicians and ethicists and, you know. Approaching it very objectively, Very objectively, yeah. You know, so, I mean, there's some people that would say, oh, we shouldn't do this above the age of 85. Well, you know, that's really ageist. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, you know, some 85-year-olds that are probably in better health than me. Um, And then there's... just thinking the same thing. (laughs) I see running marathons. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, so age is an arbitrary number, Mm -hmm. and it really... Was was on who would benefit the most, um, but you know you, you see media stories of older people who, when there was a shortage of ventilators in, and I think it was in Italy when I, I saw this thing that they said, no, please give it to somebody younger. I've lived my life, um, and and that's that's a hard decision for people to make, um, and yeah. <laughs> It, but but you know there there's some truth to that if mm-hmm. you know some I, I would think that that if some you know a grandmother if you will would would if the choice between her getting a ventilator and the you know ten year old grandson you know I I think that a lot of grandmothers would give it to their ten year old grandson um, but. You know, there's no hard and fast rules about that. So that's why an ethical framework of how you make these decisions mm-hmm. is really, really important. I'm just thinking through, too, just COVID in general, how many other, you know, bioethics situations that brought up when we were doing um, a podcast a few months back about vaccines. You know, we were talking about uh, Oxner's clinical trial they were participa- participating in for vaccines and, you know, who's getting the placebo, who's getting you know, the vaccine. And that that was one of the first cases where they actually had to unblind the participants afterwards to say, you know, you actually got the placebo. And, you know, ethically speaking, that it's kind of awkward to have to, you know, go back and say, yeah, you were given the placebo. And so just thinking through, you know, other places you're seeing ethics in, all the studies people are doing um, yeah. outside of even those, you know, direct patient care situations. So, you know, there's, there's transplant ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, there's ethics around organ donation. Um, all of our research studies, we have an institutional review board that has an ethicist on it. Um, you know, should we have an, an ethics conversation about when you're doing some sort of um, some of these new procedures for like epilepsy in children? Um, you know, just just really who who gets those procedures? What are the side effects? What are the ramifications? Um, you know, pediatrics is a whole different. I know. I was about to say, I could go. We're going to need a second episode. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, uh, you know, pediatrics is a whole different thing. Um, uh, and at Auctioner Health, we do have a pediatric palliative medicine team as well. And we. Um, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
uh, fairly new. Um, Just a growing service line here at Oxnard for sure. Yeah, it, it is. It's really been a big emphasis of the system over the last couple of years. Um, and so, you know, ethics, though, is is part of what we do, how we make good decisions, um, and, uh, you know, just just how we use the technology that we have mm-hmm. um, is, is really important. And so sometimes it's just because we can doesn't mean we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so we, we just need to keep all those sorts of things in mind as we, as we take care of, best care of patients that we possibly can. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nelson, for joining us today. This has been one of my favorite interviews we've ever done, just so eye-opening and and really meaningful for me to be able to hear about your experience and what you do here at Oxner. Um, and I think I speak on behalf of all of us and all patients when we thank you for all the work, the vital work that you're doing for patients and their families. Thank you. I hope this discussion with Dr. Nelson has shed some light on how the tough ethical decisions are made in a healthcare setting. I know personally it's helped me to know that there are many well-trained and bright people out there who take these decisions very seriously and really dedicate a lot of time, thought, and care into making the best decisions for the good of the patients and their loved ones. For more information about this topic, please visit oxner.org and search for palliative care. I'm your host, Alex Godin. Thanks for joining me on this episode, and I'll see you next time on Innovation Health.